0: Hello, and welcome to the AMP Podcast. My name is Ed, and I'm the Executive Director here at Ampere Analysis, and I will be your host for today. If you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you'll enjoy the episode. For context, Ampere Analysis is a data and analytics firm specializing in the global entertainment industry. This podcast is all about bringing together expert voices from across the company to discuss the latest trends, research, and insights in the media sector. In this episode, we will be looking over some of the key trends we observed across the TV, games, and sports sectors in 2022, and looking ahead to how we think this will continue through 2023 and beyond. To join me in discussing this, I have four guests who will be sharing their insights with us. Lottie Towler, Fred Black, Ben McMurray, and Louise Shorthouse. Let's begin by going around the table and having our guests introduce themselves.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Lottie Towler. I'm a research manager here at Ampere and I lead the team that focuses on content licensing and distribution.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Fred. I'm a research manager here at Ampere and I focus on trends in the production and commissioning of original content.
3: Hi, my name is Ben McMurray. I'm a senior analyst at Ampere with an expertise in the dynamics affecting the sports broadcasting market.
4: Hello, my name is Louise Shorthouse and I'm a research manager at Ampere where I track the global video games market and I manage our games consumer research product.
3: You are listening to the Amp podcast from Ampere Analysis. To learn more about Ampere's research and services head to ampereanalysis.com
0: Our focus today is looking back on 2022, and with that in mind, I think one of the big events we need to discuss that influenced pretty much all industries this past year was the cost of living crisis that hit most markets and economies. The factors driving this are multiple, including the war in Ukraine and the continuing legacy impact of COVID-19, with the end result that companies and consumers in all markets have faced and are facing difficult financial decisions that are impacting on their media businesses in a real way. Focusing just initially on the consumer angle, I'd like to start by discussing how cost of living changes have impacted some of the sectors we cover here in Ampere. Uh, starting perhaps with yourself, Lottie.
1: In terms of the subscription video on demand market, we saw a really big decrease in net additions in 2022 compared to the previous years. Now, part of this is due to seeing huge growth in 2020 and 2021 when there were lockdown periods due to the pandemic and growth really accelerated. But also in 2022, because of the cost of living crisis, we've seen a decrease. Of course, we heard headline news when Netflix reported its first ever subscriber loss. It was particularly hard hit in mature markets like the US, where stacking has sort of begun to plateau. So going forward, these companies will be really relying on growth to come from international markets.
0: Are there any international markets or areas in particular where we are still seeing some growth in in the VOD market?
1: Uh, LATAM saw quite good growth in 2022. This is primarily driven by Disney Plus and Star Plus's success. And we're also still seeing sort of big growth in Asia Pacific.
0: Thanks, Lassie. That's really interesting. Is this something we're seeing more widely? For example, Ben, are we seeing this in the sports sector as well, this kind of cost consciousness of consumers?
3: Yeah. So in sports, first of all, we're seeing something that seems to buck the trend. This is that the proportion of sports fans that are willing to pay to watch sport has actually increased. So this is based on data from Ampere's sports Focus consumer survey, where we've seen in Q4 2021, 80% of consumers would pay to watch sport. And this has risen to 87% in Q4 2022. But in a cost-of-living crisis, something does have to give. And this is the amount that consumers are willing to pay. So overall, we've seen a 33% drop in the amount that consumers are willing to pay for sport. This does, of course, vary by country. So in Spain, for example, this has almost halved, while in Germany this has been largely unaffected.
0: So that's two industries where we're sort of seeing the same overall trend with perhaps slightly more growth in, in sport. Louise, over to you from a games perspective. Are we, are we also seeing the same kind of reaction from consumers to the cost of living crisis?
4: It's actually been slightly different from a games perspective. So in 2022, we saw a decline in the global games market for the first time in the smartphone era. And actually, there were a number of factors here that were really interplaying. It's really quite difficult to say to what extent the cost of living crisis played a major role. Actually, we've seen some financial results recently from some big publishers like Ubisoft, which do seem to indicate a softening in spend on premium content in December. And that actually could be a sign of the cost of living crisis starting to have an impact. But games are traditionally very resilient. And so I think in the game space, it's really important to just consider the broader picture.
0: So, what are some of these different factors that are affecting the games market declining in 2022?
4: So, in 2022, we saw a lot of delays in terms of big games and the content pipeline, which also means that 2023 is looking a little bit brighter. In China specifically, China is the biggest global games market, so we have a lot of issues around regulations surrounding time spent gaming for minors, which is cutting down the amount of time people are playing games for and also there has been a slowdown in terms of game approval so in china individual games have to be approved by the government and there was a significant reduction in that in 2022 and I
0: guess just sort of throwing this out to everyone, really, more generally, as we're seeing these trends across all the different industries in terms of a reduction in potential consumer spend, are we seeing any differences in how services are choosing to aggregate their content or bundle content in order to respond to this?
1: One thing we've seen is that for s platforms, a lot of them seem to be trying to drive uptake of yearly subscriptions rather than monthly and this is something that seems to be becoming a lot more common as people are subscribing for a few months to watch all of the content they want on a given platform. And then they're churning in favor of taking up something else. I mean, this is only going to be increasing as consumers are becoming more cost sensitive. So these yearly tiers obviously have the benefit of locking in subscribers for longer.
2: I think aggregation and bundling is a key trend and companies finding increasingly creative ways to work with each other and package their content together. So last week, we saw the announcement of the Warner Pass in France, which is a add-on to Amazon Prime Video's channels. But it adds on content from across 12 Warner-owned channels, including the likes of HBO, Cartoon Network, Eurosport. So it makes a lot of sense for consumers who are kind of feeling the fatigue of having to search for content across a number of different services. And it's also a way of locking consumers in. So at a time when a lot of people are trying to reduce their costs... Offering discounted prices on content bundles means that consumers are less likely to drop out of their third or fourth most used S-Pod service. I guess maybe the danger is possibly a kind of dilution of brand name. So one of Netflix's key kind of advantages in the market is that their hit original shows like Squid Game or The Witcher are recognized as a Netflix show globally. Do Warner risk kind of losing that branding off big HBO shows like uh, The Last of Us, for instance, which will launch on a prime video channel in France instead.
0: Thanks, Fred. That's really interesting. And thanks, everyone. It's actually another trend that I do remember from our recent report on this was that we're seeing an increased consumer interest in aggregation as well. So there's a correlation between the number of video on demand services that consumers are taking and their desire for increased aggregation. So we touched in the previous section about how the cost of living struggles have changed the nature of consumer spending habits. And I'd like us to focus a little bit more in this section on how the different consumer services and content rights holders have reacted to this from a strategic nature. Starting with the TV sector, we've seen a whole host of significant moves in the past 12 months. Fred, can you help us to make some sense of some of these strategic decisions that are being made by these video and TV companies from a content perspective and the big underlying trends driving these moves?
2: So... I think from the original content perspective, one big trend we've seen in the last year is a slowdown in commissioning of new content. So in the US, less new TV content was ordered in 2022 than in 2021. And that's coming off the back of several years of really rapid growth. So while the fall in the market is only marginal, it signals the end of a kind of perpetual growth cycle in the quantity of TV content being made. And interestingly, that fall is manifesting across all platforms. So you might expect it from pay TV and the free-to-air broadcasters, but it's SVOD services too, reducing the number of shows being made. These aren't niche services either. You've got big platforms like Netflix, HBO Max and Paramount Plus, all ordering fewer originals last year than the year before. The trends further advanced in scripted content as well. Scripted TV commissions fell not only in the US, but other major markets like Germany, South Korea, Australia, France, the Nordics. And that's a trend that's accelerating as well. And that's got significant consequences for the production sector.
0: Do you think this is purely a function of cost?
2: I think what's driving that trend downwards is the end of the pursuit of subscriber growth at all costs. So up to kind of last year, SFOD services were judged pretty exclusively on growing their subscriber base by investors. And the best way to attract new subscribers is an endless pipe of splashy new content. Now, though, investors are asking questions about what happens when the new subscribers run out. How do you make SVOD a sustainable way of monetizing content, particularly if you're a studio business potentially giving up a lot of distribution revenue? That's making companies question more the amount of TV being made and the amount of money being spent on that content too. I think what will be really interesting for me is how audiences react when they are affected by this change of strategy. So while globally, SVOD services ordered 3% less scripted TV last year than the previous, they actually released 21% more. So it's going to be a while until consumers notice that slowdown in commissioning and how they react when their platforms aren't producing more and more original content.
1: Is there anything you've seen in terms of how those commissions are changing, whether by genre or are we seeing a difference in terms of like the length of seasons? Are people commissioning longer seasons to fill out more hours for less cost?
2: We're seeing a turndown in the most premium genres. So while you'll still get the tentpole shows like Lord of the Rings or The Mandalorian, people are taking fewer bets on riskier propositions. So shows with that kind of budget, but without an audience baked in. So you'll see, while well, those tentpole shows will continue to exist, you'll see fewer gambles, basically, on the most premium genres.
0: So I think you know, a lot of this is a consequence, as you say, of subscriber growth slowing down, and therefore the economics, perhaps, of spending huge money commissioning large shows makes less sense when you're not growing your subscribers at incredible rate. Lottie, has that affected anything from a licensing or distribution standpoint as well?
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of areas here. So we first think about cinema, we're seeing players like Netflix pivot in strategy a bit. I and mean, instead of just always releasing things straight onto SWOD, they've started experimenting a bit with a limited theatrical release first. So, for example, with their Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, that had a week in cinemas. So, essentially, it's all about balancing getting sort of extra revenue from that theatrical premiere, but then also balancing that with having like a rich enough slate to either attract some new subscribers or also keep current subscribers happy. In terms of other content, one thing that's really interesting is that Warner Brothers Discovery had kind of mentioned that it plans to sort of monetize some of its content in additional ways. So whether that has been selling some of the HBO Max originals that it removed from its platform to third parties, but also plans to license out some of the content on HBO Max non-exclusively to other players. And I think that's something that's so interesting because SVOD strategy for so long has been focused on exclusive original content that isn't shared, you know, completely different sort of the AVOD strategy. And I think the sort of lines between those two are becoming a bit more blurred as these players try to sort of monetize content in other ways.
2: I think a lot of the SVOD services early on, or the studios behind the SVOD services at least didn't account exactly for how much money they were giving up by essentially pausing their distribution businesses in the markets where the SVOD services were active, and now they've realised they can't reach a subscriber number where those sums add up. for having to go back to distribution, particularly for the kind of long tail of library titles that are slightly less less popular on an SVOD platform, but will still be lucrative via maybe a linear TV channel or even via
3: an AVOD or fast service. I think the caution around production and licensing has in a way led to the big OTT players testing the waters a bit with sports and really starting to trial that and invest in there. So with many of the top services based in the US and in particular for sports, this is a very lucrative market. This seems like a logical place to start for them. So we've got Apple TV Plus taking the MLS, Amazon already taking the NFL and YouTube TV also joining the fun with the Sunday ticket rights. Overall, I think the amount that OTT companies are investing in sports is growing very rapidly. This does, though, make profitability difficult with such high costs.
0: That's interesting because I think in many ways that kind of mirrors Fred's earlier point. For the last few years, there's been a real acceleration in spend around original movie and TV content, and now there's been that tailing back. It sounds like from what you're saying, Ben, that we're now seeing that same strategy of of spend and growth really focusing more on sport from some of these uh, bigger players.
3: Yeah, so it's very reminiscent of the way that sports functioned for pay TV companies when the market started to boom there. Sports buy-in is not necessarily about profitability for these companies yet, it's really about building that market share first and then later capitalizing on it.
0: So as you say, I think one of the big challenges that sort of faced around sports is how to actually monetize that. So moving back to the sort of VOD space, we have seen also some changes in strategy around how sort of different video on demand services are tiering themselves and the ways they're being more flexible in terms of, of offering themselves to subscribers. So Lati, would you be able to potentially speak to that?
1: Well, one of the big things was the... Launch of ad tiers. Of course, some of the studios, such as studio ad platforms like HBO Max, Paramount Plus, have had these kind of cheaper ad-supported tiers for a while. But the big one launching was obviously Netflix. Again, it was a bit of a U-turn from what it said it would ever do. But its new ad tier launched on the third of November, and since then, about eight percent of new signups have been to this new tier. And what we can see from our research is that it's been quite successful in attracting back price-sensitive customers who had previously churned. So of those sort of new signups, essentially 75% were consumers that had Netflix previously and churned. So that's one way in which they're sort of able to retain customers during this cost of living crisis.
2: I think it's worth mentioning though that reportedly Netflix have struggled to hit the views per minute count on the advertising that they've sold. So obviously they have to make up that lost revenue that they're not getting from subscriptions through advertisers. And if they can't make their advertising platform work, then they will be losing revenue per user, which is exactly what they don't want to be doing.
0: I think what Fred's discussing there is ultimately a question of scale, though, right? So any advertising theory depends on having a large enough audience to potentially reach enough different demographics. Obviously, one of the difficulties with starting an advertising tier in business from scratch is just having that audience size. And one interesting question for me in the future will be, obviously, the larger Netflix lets that ad tier grow, the more valuable it will be to advertisers, but equally, the more of their own subscription business they ultimately end up cannibalizing. So I think there's a real balance to be struck there.
1: I think it will be also really interesting to see how this develops in terms of now having these kind of hybrid ad supported tiers and whether that will kind of become a place for premium advertising with higher CPMs uh, compared to pure play AVOD services. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of competition. And another thing we're seeing is that those pure play AVOD platforms are actually investing more in original content to kind Mm -hmm. of make sure that they have an inventory that is worth investing in when it comes to advertisers.
2: I mean, I guess what I would say is that I think the future looks very hybrid. I think these terms like AVOD and SVOD, we won't be talking about them in three or four years. All of the platforms will be operating both ad tiers and subscription tiers. Linear channels will be up writing both online as well. So yeah, it's a discussion that's very much now, but it's maybe not too relevant in a couple of years. I mean, I think Fast channels definitely fit into that maybe the most. You've for years been able to watch, you know, ITV1 online. There's very little difference between that and a Fast Channel. We just didn't have a name for it seven or eight years ago. And so I think all of the content being available on demand and also in channels, it's another trend that we'll see over the next few years.
1: I think one difference with fast channels, I guess, compared to what we've had with linear or those kind of like online versions of major broadcaster channels is the slightly lower barrier to entry. So obviously we've got channels that just air a single show. You have um, esports channels, YouTube creators like People Are Awesome creating sort of channels. So I think that's one area in which it's definitely
0: changing. And it feels like in many ways that also slightly removes, I guess, the power of brand in the nature nature of fast channels. It's much more about the content. As you say, it lowers the barriers of entry because you're not curating the running order in the same way. A lot of it is really based around the content you're able to get access to and and how you can make that available quickly. But I think it also does potentially lower the ability of any individual brand. That's probably more about the content you have access to and having a wide range of channels at any given point. One, one final point, uh, sort of interestingly, is we've been talking about not necessarily a decline in subscription, but a, a shift away from pure subscription and towards more hybrid models and more hybrid tiers. It sounds, Louise, from from some of your research, like we're seeing the opposite in the, in the game space to a degree.
4: Yeah, so yet again, the situation is actually very different in the games world. While it sounds as though in the TV space, as you said, services are in some ways moving away from subscriptions, in games the subscription model is still very immature. A lot of companies and platforms are still establishing a best practice and actually subscription services in games are just inherently very different to in the video space because they have this extra layer of monetization in the form of in-game spending. So quite often, subscription services are just acting as user acquisition tools so that users can then go in and then move on to this next layer of spending in terms of microtransactions and in-game spend. So we're continually seeing growth from game subscription services, but this is from a fairly small base. So in 2022, Subscription services represented between 5 and 6% of total global game spend on content and services. In terms of how strategies are evolving around game subscription services, I would say that Microsoft in particular has really redefined and actually continues to shape the games content subscription service landscape with Game Pass, Xbox Game Pass. So they've been exploring how live service and free-to-play games can fit into a subscription service landscape. And really, I think that's a necessary step for the evolution of games content subscription services.
0: And is this changing in any way, how games are being developed or released, uh, the growth of these subscription services?
4: Well, the share of content going into these types of services on day one, so on launch day, which we would call day one content, has definitely increased over the past year. But again, this is something that only Microsoft really is pioneering because they have the financial capability to be able to pay for these launch day titles. So it's really not something that's very widespread at the moment.
0: And. In a similar way, I suppose, to how we were discussing in the sports and video industry, is there a kind of foregoing of short-term revenue in order to grow these services or grow that market share?
4: Oh, absolutely. I would say so. I mean, I think the reason that Microsoft's Xbox Game Pass has done so well is because they are able to spend so much money on acquiring exclusive, I would say, all this kind of day one content. And most other companies are just not able to do that. And I think that definitely does come at a loss.
0: I think we've we've seen some really interesting points there, and it's interesting to me how there's so much similarity, I suppose, in some of the different trends that are striking these different industries, but just perhaps at different times. We're, we're seeing that, for example, in the sports industry, the same growth that we maybe previously seen in the TV and movie business, where companies are really driving and, and spending sort of unprofitably to grow. We're also seeing that in the game space, as Louise discussed with Microsoft and Xbox Game Pass. And I think we're seeing in the video space where things are perhaps a little bit more mature and competition is very high, almost the next stage progression of this, where there's much more of a consolidation and a focus on how to really reach consumers at more cost-effective price points and also how to try to monetize those consumers better as well. It's kind of really interesting to see the different stages that all the industries are at and, and many of the similarities between them. So far today, we spent a lot of time discussing trends from a service and consumer point of view, but I'd like to take a step back for a minute and look at the broader landscape for media as a whole. Louise, last year you put out a major report regarding the attention economy, which roughly speaking looked to kind of understand the context of how different forms of media, such as TV, sports, games, music, podcasts, etc., competed and interact with each other for consumer attention and how that's kind of been evolving over time. From this perspective, are there any broader trends you've noticed in 2022, I suppose particularly surrounding the games market?
4: Well, I think we're now in a situation that we could label peak attention economy, where there are far more media and and entertainment sources than any one person can actually consume. So we're having to be much more selective with what gets our time and what gets our attention. And a key finding from this research was that people spend more time watching video content than they do playing video games. But within that time, they actually spend more on gaming. So consumers are spending more money per hour of gaming than they are per hour of watching video. So games essentially offer slightly better returns for less time. And this means they represent quite a worthwhile focus for companies who are competing in the much broader media and entertainment space. And that's why we're seeing the likes of Netflix and TikTok and even Amazon looking much more seriously into games.
0: You mentioned Netflix looking more seriously into the games. That's obviously been one of uh, their kind of big bets of the last couple of years. How has that been playing out for them?
4: Well, I think games in Netflix's case is more of a kind of value add and user retention tool. I don't think anyone's going directly to Netflix purely for the games, although I think that's something that we might see change in the future, given we've heard that they're also investing in bigger kind of AAA content as well for PC and console. But at the moment, while it's on mobile and it's included in people's existing subscriptions, it's much more of a kind of user retention tool, which again, goes back to this whole idea of the attention economy and trying to keep people within your ecosystem.
2: I think that trend is manifesting as well in the cross-pollination of IP across different mediums. So we've seen the number of new shows and movies based on existing IP really on the rise in the last few years, and video games are a really good source of that. And I think that links back to how audiences move across mediums, but it also links back to the last section where we were talking about services needing to focus on return on investment on their new content. So one way to ensure kind of a level of audience engagement and reduce the risk of an expensive flop is to leverage already popular franchises or pieces of IP. Now, if you're a big content studio, that's pretty easy. You've got plenty of internally owned IP to draw from. Services like Netflix and Amazon, however, have to look a bit harder. They don't have that kind of history of IP to use. Many of the major franchises in the US are already owned by a rival. They've either got to pay over the odds, like Amazon have done for Lord of the Rings, or they've got to get creative and so video games. International IP as well, particularly in markets where the economics of producing a premium adaptation of a popular game or a book has not previously been in reach. And that also opens up new kind of deep creative worlds that you can introduce to a new global audience while having a locked in local audience in a market you're targeting for subscriber growth.
1: I think it's also really beneficial for games companies as often creating a spin-off TV show can help to draw in a new audience. Something we've seen with titles like The Witcher, where the release of the first season on Netflix caused it to go back into Steam's top 10 selling games, for example.
4: I think a lot of video game adaptations have been quite hit and miss in the past. And I think often it comes down to a question of being faithful to the source material or not. So we've seen a lot of content in the past. So Halo, for example, which was quite poorly received because it bore quite little resemblance to the actual game content. Whereas with Last of Us, which has just been released, it has been really, really well received. And it's actually incredibly close to the game. But then it kind of gets to a point where people are thinking, if it's exactly the same as the game, what is the point? And also The Last of Us was kind of written in in a cinematic style. So it was quite easy, I think, to lift that into a TV format. I think one of the main reasons why studios choose to use Games IP is because they have these huge existing fan bases. But if you're going to change the source material beyond a certain point, then of course, there's no guarantee that those fans are going to come along with you.
0: I think that's a very fair point. It makes sense from what we were discussing last section that as you are looking to be more efficient with your content spend, you'd want to leverage existing audiences and kind of use that to really have at least some guaranteed return on investment. I think one interesting thing from my perspective, though, is not just sort of reaching into existing audiences, but also using auxiliary content from other media forms to try and boost a sort of your own core business line, I suppose. And that sort of brings that, I think, to sports where we've seen quite a few examples recently.
3: Yeah, so sports obviously has this one main product, which is the live competitions. This is where the real value is. This is where the companies that buy sports rights want consumers to be watching. The problem is we're getting younger viewers watching less and less of this live sport. So 18 to 34 year olds claim to be watching around three and a half hours of live sports per week. But if we look at maybe 35 to 64 year olds, it's about an hour more per week. However, we've seen this ancillary content, such as social media posts, betting, sports documentaries, having a positive effect. So they're not competing for attention from these consumers. They're actually boosting their viewership of the live sport and improving their engagement with it. I think the best example of this is playing fantasy sports. This can produce the highest level of engagement. You've got a player you're watching to see how he does younger consumers this can boost it from three and a half hours to over four hours almost on par with the older audiences who watch more live sports.
1: Well I can't say I'm a fantasy sport user but I did get quite into Formula One after Netflix's Drive to Survive documentary. What kind of effect have things like that had on engagement with sports?
3: So Netflix aren't necessarily growing this engagement for themselves they don't have their own sports rights but the hits like Drive to Survive, their new tennis documentary, these have all seem to be big hits. So this is good for the platforms themselves. They're getting engagement, people are engaging with these documentaries, and it's also good for the leagues because it's growing popularity of the sport and, in many cases, growing the value of the rights.
2: I think what's interesting is what happens when we kind of hit the new peak of uh, value of those rights. So at the minute, all those sports are getting a huge upside from being on Netflix because the rights to their live product are going through the reef. When that starts to slow down again, are we going to see wider competition for those documentary rights, which are very valuable in themselves, but are worth a lot less than running a live sport?
0: I think that's a really good point, because right now, essentially, the documentaries are almost driving the sports rights. But what happens, I suppose, when the sports rights start driving the content and the auxiliary content that gets produced around it? I think it's also really interesting that the fact that we now have international S4 platforms reaching hundreds of millions of subscribers means that you can essentially do this. You can take something like a a live sporting event and serve content to hundreds of millions of subscribers and potentially grow that event in a way that I don't think was really possible or viable in the past through a series of individual pay deals globally. So we're sort of seeing the consolidation of video on demand globally in a handful of major services really create new opportunities for other brands and other media types to grow their their own brands, whether they be games or whether they be, be sporting events. We've talked a lot about what has happened and what is happening right now. But finally, I'd like to put all of our analysts on the spot a little bit. I'd like you each to pick out one big trend you think we still look out for in 2023. Uh, Ben, perhaps we can start with yourself.
3: We've been seeing growth in both engagement and value for a particular category of sports properties, and these are women's competitions. There's still a scale challenge with this. It's very difficult to defrone the equivalent men's competitions. So the women's competitions are still typically around 2% of the value of the equivalent men's leagues. But if we focus on seven of the top global sports rights markets, the women's sports themselves have grown 111% for a total of $231 million. The interest is increasing, viewership and attendance records are being smashed. There is a reluctance for consumers to be willing to pay for these competitions, as rights are still mostly free-to-air. But this serves an important purpose in growing the audience first. And it seems to be working.
1: So I think my trend for 2023 will be strategies for SWOR platforms and AVOR platforms converging even more. So SVOD platforms licensing their content out non-exclusively. And on the kind of flip side, AVOD continuing to invest more into content, whether that be originals, but also quite significant licensing deals. So, for example, similar to the ones that FreeV announced last year with NBCU and Disney.
2: One of the trends we're going to see over the next year is some consolidation within the SVOD market. So we're expecting HBO Max and Discovery Plus to launch a merged service pretty soon. We've already seen Sky Showtime launch in a number of key markets. I expect more and more in markets where SVOD penetration has kind of frozen at around two or three platforms, but there are five or six major competitors. Some of those competitors will team up in new and interesting ways to try and grow their subscriber base um, to something more sustainable.
4: The games market is a lot less predictable than it has been in the past. There are a number of territory-specific challenges which will persist. The content pipeline also looks quite strong for 2023, but there are a number of challenges there as well. So there won't be a new Call of Duty title in 2023. And also this year, we will see EA FIFA dropping the FIFA brand for the first time. But our current assumptions do point to a return to growth, where the PC and console markets will provide consistent performances and that growth will largely be driven by mobile.
0: Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much to all of our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Lottie, Fred, Ben, and Louise today regarding major media industry trends in 2022 and touched upon topics such as the cost of living crisis, the change in strategy and priorities for online consumer services, and the evolution of cross-media content and integration. Both the 2022 summary report and the 2023 prediction video discussed today are available on Ampere's website. Do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this research. If you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to AmpereAnalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at AmpereAnalysis.com. That's info at AmpereAnalysis.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening.